Hi, welcome to the FinTech Report podcast, a deep dive into the people, platforms and businesses in the FinTech sector. I'm your host, Glenn Frost, and each episode, I'll be talking with a leading expert in the FinTech field. So thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast. The FinTech Report podcast is brought to you in partnership with Australian FinTech News, a news and information website covering everything you need to know in FinTech in Australia and around the world. You can learn more australianfintech.com.au. This podcast is also brought to you in partnership with global data aggregator and open banking experts Investnet Yodley. They've held an office in Australia for over a decade, are actively engaged with the ACCC and open banking, and are compliant at the highest level of local and international infosec standards. Yodley's data solutions are used by some of the region's most exciting and innovative companies, including 86400, Zero, and Finder. They offer financial innovation, CDR, open banking, responsible lending, data aggregation, account verification, and analytics. Today, I'm delighted to welcome back Caleb Gibbons, founder of Cash Invest to the podcast, or Cash Invest, spelled C-A-C-H-E. They provide investing as a service so that any company can be a fintech company. You can integrate Cash's fully digital investment products directly into your existing app, website, or other platform through their APIs. Welcome, Caleb. Thanks for being our guest on the FinTech Report podcast. Hi, Glenn. Let's kick off. You have some great coverage in the Australian Financial Review with your research reports into investing and micro-investing. Let's kick off with a bit of a summary on those two reports and the feedback that you received from the industry. Yeah, sure. Cash prepares the micro-investing report every year, and we do a review of all of the micro-investing products in the market. Um, For the listeners at home, micro-investing we define as platforms that you can invest 10 or more times over the course of a year an amount of less than $500 for a cost of less than $50 in aggregate. So they're products that help people invest small amounts of money efficiently, typically include recurring investment platforms or or micro-portfolio products. So we put a report out once every 12 months and on a full review of the market, and then we do a quarterly update every quarter. Typically, it gets uh, featured in the AFR. Yeah, lovely. What were the key takeouts? So this year, our, our report's coming out in the next couple of weeks, and the headline figure is that there are now over 2 million micro-investing investors in Australia, which is up almost 100% from 12 months ago, showing that Australians really do invest primarily through micro-investing digital platforms, including apps and websites. A couple of things. One is, I suppose, a a number. Do you have a rough average balance? And also, perhaps a bit more nuanced, you say the numbers, you know, almost double. What do you think is the reason for that? The number first, let's do roughly what's the account balance, do you think, across the micro-investing apps? I think there is a bit of variance in the balance between investing apps. We certainly see it through our clients. The younger platforms, which have account holders that have been on for a shorter period of Mm -hmm. time, typically have lower balances. And typically, balances grow over time. I think most products in the market are only a few years old and account holders have been saving and investing for two or three years are typically have higher balances than the ones that have just started. Typical investment behavior would be that you start with an amount and that amount could be 1000 3000 yeah. 5000 and then you might set up a recurring investment of say $50 a month or $100 a month. Yeah. And so the average balance is cohorted and the older products have larger balances. Okay, so perhaps amongst say... Gen Z or Gen Z, depending on uh, your phrase you use. Are we talking a couple of grand and then millennials average about five? Is Am I in the ballpark there? Yeah, that's about right. It also depends on the product. Uh, we, we find that products that are targeted to more niche industries or more advanced investment strategies have higher balances. 
and the products that are targeted towards younger investors or more more diversified products that are simpler typically have lower balances. And in a way, that's actually a great tick for the sector because isn't the whole point that may a thousand flowers bloom? Your business is is about providing the opportunity for lots of people to target lots of different categories of people. I think we absolutely provide a platform in, in micro-investing. We help people launch their own mm-hmm. digital right. investment products. And we've actually been quite excited to see the proliferation mm-hmm. of products in the market. We're definitely in an expansive stage of growth. The account holder growth is fantastic across the market. And so there's a lot of space nice. for different products to, to yeah. form their niche. I expect that over time the market will mature and that'll mean that it looks a bit more like traditional investment markets where there are strong brands that distribute through those brands and their offerings and people will form their own space in that market. The old days of having one or two providers with very generic products I think are are behind us. Yeah, very interesting. Given the growth that you mentioned in the last year, we were still sort of half in lockdown and half not. But there's been a lot more companies launch and come to market. What do you think has been the experience for some of your clients and some of the other people in the market in terms of how people are engaging with where they consume news and information about financial services, given that we're not necessarily at home all the time? I think that's a really interesting question. I don't know if I can talk to the consumption of news by our our clients' account holders, but uh, we've definitely seen the past like last financial year was definitely a year of two halves. The first half of the year being the, end, the second end of 2021, the investment market was very, very strong. Mm-hmm. The ASX was performing mm-hmm. well. All of our clients were growing pretty rapidly and spending in marketing dollars to grow. The first half of this year, 2022, obviously has been a more suppressed market. The ASX hasn't performed as well this year. And so we've seen quite a few of our clients hold on to their marketing dollars a bit longer. And I think they're, they're waiting for the market to return before they're properly deploy their their capital. Um, That being said, investor behavior, a bit surprising for us in the sense that traditionally you would expect that during a downturn, people invest less frequently and they withdraw more regularly. We've heard that anecdotally from the broking markets. You know, people are keeping more money in cash from the traditional investment markets. By contrast, our clients across our customer base, we're still experiencing about 95% inflows with 19 investments for every one withdrawal. And if that's surprising to, to anyone, I think it would just go to the nature of a micro-investing product, yeah, okay. which is that if you set up a recurring investment, then it's dollar cost averaging into a portfolio and typically you don't want to touch that. And so yeah. even during a downturn, people are continuing to put money into their micro-investing portfolios and use them as a savings tool as well as an investment tool. Very good point. And I think, you know, I'm touching a piece of wood somewhere. The Australian economy does have full employment particularly for that age category that your customers are predominantly focused on. You know, we're not seeing high levels of youth unemployment, things like that. So that must be a great source of comfort for your clients launch, launching and growing their businesses at this time. The micro-investing portfolio product space is shares features of savings products as well as investment yeah, products. Okay. Yeah. And so people use them to put away their money regularly and build balances over time. It's not just a tool to deploy the capital that you have saved previously. Yes. It is a savings tool as well. And, yes. and during a downturn, savings tools are very popular. And during a boom time, investment tools are very popular. And so I think micro-investing products kind of shares features of both. I also know that some of your clients are what you might call in the loyalty reward space. 
Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's a really interesting development for your area too. Yeah, sure. So we have a few clients on our platform that do share rewards mm-hmm. or they provide stock back in yes. exchange for purchases. So an example would be Upstreet, where every time you make a purchase at a participating retailer, you earn a fractional shares mm-hmm. in that retailer as a, as a loyalty reward. Mm-hmm. And they would say that you earn stock in your favorite companies every time you shop. And then the example would be if you buy a, a Marley Spoon box, you can earn Marley Spoon shares. Or if you purchase a JB Hi-Fi, you earn JB Hi-Fi stock. They were one of our early clients. And obviously that as a product is a fantastic way to introduce a lot of people to investing when they may not have otherwise. And they've gone on to add a range of features to help people you know, top up into their portfolios or make additional investments on top of that. Their most recent feature is employee rewards where listed companies can provide stock to their their employees on the same platform. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Given that um, you know Australia, a sort of quite unique number of companies listed on the stock exchange, and historically it's been sort of miners and banks and things like that. I mean, do you want to encourage more companies to list? Would you like to see um, a situation where sort of share ownership and there are more IPOs so that we can have a greater, broader, deeper shareholder ownership democracy situation? I think there's two parts to that question. The first one is, should more companies list? And the Mm. second one is, should more people invest? Mm. And I think on the first question, I don't know if I'm qualified to make that decision and make Mm. a comment on that. Mm. I think companies need to find access to capital in, in their own way. But on the second topic on whether people should invest, I think that Australia for a very long time has not invested enough of its disposable income. I think we have superannuation, which is a fantastic, very long-term investment and savings um, tool. And we also have a very strong property investment culture. But it means that the vast majority of Australians do not invest over the medium term in equities or in in companies that might produce a strong return for them. And so I think there is a gap in the market at least a gap in the Australian psyche about where money should be deployed. And that is they go from a savings account to a a home loan and then they think superannuation is investment and they almost don't think outside of that. An analogy or an anecdote to illustrate that, there's only about 1.2 million Australians who place a trade on the ASX every year, which is about 5% of the Australian population. And that's not nearly enough. And it includes all the day traders and the long-term investors. By contrast, you know, micro-investing products and our 2 million accounts, I think there is far more opportunity for Australians to invest through managed products or other other products rather than direct ASX investment. That's a really interesting comment and, and thank you for that. So where do you see your growth coming from in the future? And I'm also mindful when I ask that question that the new federal government has release new thoughts on financial advice and, you know, this idea about providing advice in the best interest of a consumer. How do you think that might change the either the micro-investing or the regular investing or the financial advice sector of which you may or may not be a part of? I think there are definitely two parts of the investment industry in Australia, primarily driven by regulation. One is financial advice, which is definitely set up to tell a retail investor that you will have a professional who considers your needs and then tells you what investment decisions you should make as an individual. And then you've got the second part of the sector, which is the manufacture of investment products, whether they be managed funds or structured products or other other products. And those products are designed to be good for a demographic or a market of investors, but not tailored to any particular Mm -hmm. investor. 
And now you can probably understand just from those descriptions that one of those services is a very high cost, high touch product, you know, typically manual with people in branches and the cost is very, very high and the regulations are very high. And the other product is low cost, low touch. So like ETFs are the classic example of a very low cost investment product. And so I think there's place for both in the market. The question is what percentage of retail investors should be given high touch, high cost services and what percentage should be getting the more efficient services. And I think it is pretty clear that financial advice on a personalised, tailored basis is never going to meet the needs of the Australian population and that most people who want to start investing with small amounts of money should be going into products that are designed for them as a cohort but not necessarily personalised custom products for them. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. It's almost like at a certain age you go and see a financial advisor or even in a bank branch or something, they just say micro-investing. Start there, come back and see us in five years. Well, I think, you know, if you have five or $10,000 to invest, a financial advisor, you know, probably a very high cost way of, of, of deploying that capital. Yeah, that's right. Well, and as you say, there's only very few people at that age that are going to have that sort of funds. Although with, you know, the intergenerational wealth transfer that's going to be happening in the next generation, that could change Australian society in a very dramatic way. It definitely could. Changing the subject, congratulations, you won an award at the FinTech Awards this year. Tell us a bit about your submission and, you know, winning that award. Yeah, thanks. So um, a few weeks ago, we won Best Innovator in Wealth Management at the FinTech Awards and the team was, was stoked. I think, unfortunately, I, I got caught up and couldn't receive it myself. So yes. I, I set the team forward and they collected it. I understand they had a fantastic evening. Yeah, so our submission was around our, our growth over the last yeah. 12 months. Um, we now support over 75% of the micro-investing portfolio products in the market. And so our platform has now enabled a range of other companies and startups to offer um, digital investment products to their customers. And we make it easier to put those products in a market and deal with the regulatory and compliance risks. Yeah, sure, sure. Congratulations on that. It does make it harder to win next year. You've got to think what you're going to do to top that. So putting it out there, what do you see as the opportunity for cash investors in, in the next 12 months? I'm a big believer in the micro-investing market and the digital investment market. I think we're only just getting started. I think 2 million Australians is a, is a fantastic start, but I think there's a lot more growth to come. I easily see you know, micro-investing and digital investment products servicing 5, 10 million accounts or more. I think that the Australian population need you know, short to medium-term investment products that, that generally meet their needs and they should be distributed digitally in a, in a channel that they understand and expect. And I think that market has a gap for a long time and micro-investing products as a segment fill that gap, most products in that market. And so we'll be doing everything we can to help our clients to put out the best products for the most people mm. so that they can really help more and more Australians to invest money and grow their wealth over time. And to make the jump though, I mean, when you talk about say 2 million to 5 million or 10 million, that's a big number to go from 2 to 5 to 10. You're going to need a big institution or even a couple of big institutions to get the volume, that almost means you've got to try and bring on some kind of bank or something like that. What's your thoughts on how the banks feel about, you know, this category? Can it be connected to general bank account? Can it be connected to a branch network? What's your thoughts? I think the banks will definitely enter this market, but not only the banks, also the more traditional financial services players and the large fund managers, I think, will also enter this market. I think as it matures, 
the micro-investing market will look more like the traditional investment market and will have the traditional players involved. They'll chase the opportunity to distribute to more customers. I also think that reflects international experience. I think we've seen in the US and the UK that more and more large retail banks are offering digital investment products to their customers in mobile apps, in websites, or in traditional retail banking offering. And so examples would include like Goldman Sachs, Marcus, Bank of America, HSBC, Citibank, Royal Bank of Scotland. All of these very large direct-to-retail, globally significant banks have started offering direct-to-consumer digital investment products uh, and Australian banks will will follow. I think the only uh, example we've seen so far in the market is Commonwealth Bank with Comsec Pocket. And obviously, they launched two years ago. They've got over 350,000 accounts so far. And they've recently announced that that product will be integrated directly into their core banking app, which will be the first Australian bank to do so. I'll say that they're the first, but they certainly won't be the last. For sure. That's right. Look, I think there's a really interesting year ahead, particularly if we keep uh, employment up. If you're, if you're making regular savings to investments, are you really looking at the market every day? I mean, and especially if your comment earlier about 19 inbound payments versus one out, that's a really interesting stat because that just shows that people think that the markets will continue to go up. If there's any fall, it's just a temporary fall. This idea that the market returns on average, say, 7 to 8% cumulative over the long term, do you think that's still in the mindset of people? I think it, it depends on the, the platform. Micro-investing products all have different UI and UX. Mm. The description of the dollar cost averaging client mm. who goes, I want to invest $50 a fortnight, mm. every fortnight mm. into a diversified product probably backed by ETFs or a similar portfolio. That is definitely a strong segment in the micro-investing market and it does support people who want to build wealth over the longer term. But over the longer term could be you know three years, five years, seven years. It's a bit different to like the superannuation longer term, which is the very, very long term. <laughs> the 30 and 40 years. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Great comments. Thank you for that. Let's talk about the business, Cash. What team have you got now? And uh, are you looking to bring on anyone in the next few weeks or months? Yeah, so our team now has uh, 16 full-timers in Sydney and a few more contractors. We have a few developers in the Ukraine. Really? Yeah. So it's a bit exciting yes, over there. I can imagine. And I think we're at a, at a good uh, scale for now. I think we grew pretty rapidly over the last 12 months, but we're starting to slow down in the headcount growth. So I think we might be at maybe 20 or 25 within 12 months, but certainly not doubling or tripling from, from where we are right now. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. What about your thoughts on as you do move to that next level, a number of fintech firms, startups, they have mentioned that as equity markets have come off a bit, so has valuations and funding. Do you have any thoughts in, in that area at all? I think uh, from what I understand from our, our clients and from what we've seen that a lot of startups are performing on their expectations around growth and their internal metrics seem to be strong. I, I haven't seen a deterioration in the economic conditions of our clients or of other startups, but I I have seen the valuations come off from a fundraising perspective. So it's interesting to see that businesses that are performing, you know, according to plan are not being valued according to plan. And I think their ability to raise capital is yeah, still exists, but maybe not quite at the valuation they expected. If their business is strong at an underlying level, like we haven't seen distress from businesses. It's been more about just valuations and, and capital management. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And look, I think that's always going to be the case. If you're 
growing and your customers are happy, you know, they're raving about you. Investors do want to invest. It's just often a question at what valuation and one runway they do give you. But that's, it's certainly encouraging to see the sector growing. And I think what you've described is very exciting outlook if, if a number of things do come to pass in terms of those big institutions coming in. This has been a really, really fascinating discussion. Do you have a final message that you want to leave uh, listeners with about micro-investing or investing as a service? Oh, just that everybody should start investing. Micro-investing is a fantastic place to start. Great stuff. Cleb, thanks very much for being our guest on the FinTech Report podcast. Thanks, Glenn.